Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, our ophthalmology OCAPS and board review podcast. This is your host, Ben Young. Andrew Powell is out of the country today, so I'd like to introduce my co-resident and guest host, Amanda Redfern. Thanks, Ben. I'm excited to be here today. Please keep in mind that these podcasts are for medical education only, not to diagnose that weird thing on your eye. We are ophthalmology residents who figured reviewing for a clinic, OCAPs, or boards is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we review a high-yield topic and flesh out the why and the how. Today, we're reviewing everyone's favorite topic, corneal dystrophies. As you know, there are too many of them, so we're actually breaking it up into two episodes. Today will be the first half. Wait, what, what's a corneal dystrophy? Excellent question. So a corneal dystrophy is generally a bilateral, symmetric, inherited condition of the cornea with little known relationship to any environmental or systemic factors. Oh, okay. So that means it's not things like, like band keratopathy or something where there's a clear inciting factor that causes it. Correct. So for anyone who's started studying for OCAPs already, you know that there are many, many different corneal dystrophies. We'll try to organize them in a reasonable way that is also the way it's organized in BCSC so that it's hopefully easier to organize in your memory and remember. And we'll do that anatomically from anterior to posterior. So we'll go through the epithelial, Bowman's membrane, stroma, and um, some of the posterior uh, corneal dystrophies in that order. So starting with the epithelium, Ben, can you name an epithelial corneal dystrophy? Oh my God. Are you pimping me? Hold on. Heck yes. So there's the one that has the word epithelial in it. There's epithelial basement membrane dystrophy. It has a couple other names that you've probably heard of. There's map.fingerprint dystrophy, which is just another name for the same disease. And there's ABMD, which is anterior basement membrane dystrophy. Again, it's all the same thing. What gene is this again, Amanda? Do you remember? So it's TGF beta 1 in some cases, that is. Yeah, I think a lot of the time it can be sporadic or they don't find a clear genetic cause. And, you know, it's also probably the most common of the corneal dystrophies. It's present in between 6 to 18% of the population. Usually it's in older people. Uh, people older than 30 is typically where it presents, though in theory it can present in younger people as well. And above age 50, it actually increases in frequency by quite a bit. The appearance of it clinically is just as one of the names describes, maps, dots, and fingerprints. They're essentially these gray subepithelial um, patterns that look like maps, fingerprints, or dots. There's also a, a, quote, bleb pattern, which looks more like pebbled glass. It doesn't really look like any one of the map, dots, or fingerprints specifically, but that's just another way that it can present. Um, what are some of the symptoms that patients can get when they have EBMD, Amanda? Patients can get recurrent erosions, mild visual changes, such as blurring, ghost images, or even monocular diplopia. Right. On pathology, you can see exactly what we just described. You can see these sheets or extensions or pseudocysts, which represents the maps, the fingerprints, and the dots, respectively, of the basal laminar material. So, Amanda, you mentioned like recurrent erosions, recurrent abrasions. Is this the, the main thing that would cause a recurrent abrasion? Actually, there are a lot of things that can cause recurrent uh, erosions or abrasions. So things you should think about are recent traumatic abrasion, uh, EBMD, which we're already talking about, history of herpetic keratitis, and other epithelial dystrophies that we'll get to in a few minutes. Most commonly, 
The differential diagnosis is between trauma and EBMD. To tell the difference, examine the fellow eye. Remember, dystrophies happen in both eyes, whereas trauma could just happen in one eye. So if you only see it in one eye, it would lead you to consider trauma as the most likely cause. Right. And if you look at one eye with an abrasion and the other eye has mop dot fingerprint dystrophy, then perhaps it wasn't trauma or a past trauma that caused it, but rather the EBMD. So to remind you about why traumatic abrasions can cause recurrent abrasions is that the traumatic abrasions is that when you have a traumatic abrasion, your epithelium has to regrow quickly to cover where the abrasion was, especially if it was a larger abrasion. And because it grows quickly, it doesn't necessarily adhere to the underlying Bowman's or stroma. As a result, it's not tightly adhered, and there can also even be epithelial edema in that area, which also can interfere with that adherence. Thus, if it hasn't adhered, it's easy for it to have an abrasion again. And it can take time. It can take you know months, sometimes even a year or more for um, the problem to to go away. And if you have another abrasion in that time, then then you know you can you're starting from ground zero basically again. So, you know, it shares a similar pathophysiology to epithelial basement membrane dystrophy in that both have uh, poor adhesion of the overlying epithelium to the underlying Bowman's and stroma, but obviously the mechanism for that happening is very different. So, as a fun clinical pearl, it's really important to look at the superior cornea when you're looking for EBMD because it generally starts there underneath where the eyelid would be rubbing against the cornea over and over again. Okay. I think that's good. So we can move on to the next dystrophy that affects the epithelium as well. It's a much rarer one than EBMD, and it's called Meesman's corneal dystrophy. One might even say it's the most peculiar of the corneal dystrophies. Peculiar. Why do you say that, Amanda? Well, because there's something in the cornea that we call peculiar substance. Really mysterious, huh? Right. Those are those epithelial cysts that are PAS positive when you stain them. And on the pathology, they can also, they're surrounded by this, quote, peculiar substance, which is a common buzzword that we'll see in the OCAPs. In terms of genetics, it's an autosomal dominant dystrophy, and it's related to the genes KRT3 and KRT12. Right. And clinically, the appearance is related to the pathology that we just talked about. Uh, you'll see these epithelial vesicles, they can be very small, and they're more obvious in retroillumination. It's a disease that starts very early in life and usually has pretty mild symptoms. They will have mild irritation. They have mild changes in their vision. Um, but in general, amusement does not progress to something that becomes very severe. There's another disease that's really similar to amusement, isn't there, Amanda? Yeah, it's that feathery one, uh, Lish. Lish corneal dystrophy? Lish corneal dystrophy. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, Lish, there are words that come after this. <laughs> so Lish corneal, in Lish corneal dystrophy, there are discrete feathery gray subepithelial lesions. They're densely crowded microcysts, similar to Miesman, but instead of diffuse microcysts, they are concentrated in a feathery or whorled pattern. Great. So, you know, when you think of these epithelial dystrophies, you can really think of these three, the epithelial basement membrane dystrophy, Meesman's and Lish, where Meesman's and Lish have the those uh, cysts, uh, whether they're diffuse, it's Meesman's, or concentrated and feather pattern, it's Lish's. And then if it's, you see these 
subepithelial lesions that are more like map dots or fingerprints, then you know what it is, map dot fingerprint dystrophy. Let's move a little bit more posteriorly into Bowman's membrane. What are two dystrophies that affect Bowman's membrane, Amanda? These are the two that I always get confused. There's rice bucklers. Reese bucklers? All respect to Dr. Reese or rice. We're going to call it Reese Bucklers. And dear listener, if you want to tweet us a correction, we'd love to hear it. The other one is Teal Benke. Again, sure right. we're free. Uh, I'll respect to Dr. Teal and Dr. Benke. Uh, with all due respect, we're going to go with Teal Benke. Teal Benke. So what's the difference between these two? Yeah, you know, as you allude to, they're pretty similar diseases. They're both diseases that affect that anterior stroma, really Bowman's membrane, which to remind you is not a true membrane, it's condensed anterior stroma. Basically, there's two ways to tell the difference between them. One is on pathology. On pathology, Reese Buckler's is um, sheet-like. So it's just like a plain sheet of dystrophy compared to Teal Benke, where it has a more of a sawtooth pattern. As you can imagine, the clinical result of this is that Reese Buckler's can leave people more prone to recurrent abrasions because that smooth sheet-like dystrophy allows um, the epithelium to slide off more easily. Compared to a sawtooth pattern like in Teal Benke, which means the epithelium will adhere more tightly because of the more corrugated surface um, from the Teal Benke. There's another difference with another imaging modality we don't really often use, right, Amanda? Yes, but it always comes up on boards. On electron microscopy, Reese Buckler looks like rod-shaped bodies, whereas Teal Benke looks like curly fibers. To help you remember which is rod and which is curly fibers, rod-shaped bodies are Reese Buckler's, so R for rod and R for Reese. And then curly fibers are the other one. If someone has a clever mnemonic to help remember that, we'd love to hear that too. One thing to remind you is that they both actually um, feature the same gene, TGF-beta-1, which to remind you is the gene responsible for producing keratoepithelin, keratoepithelin, which is common to a number of these corneal dystrophies, and we'll help you remember them with a mnemonic at the end. But um, that's another thing that's in common between them, and it must be a different um, variation of the genetic abnormality that manifests in different conditions. Okay. Well, that's the wonder twins of Reese Buchler's and Teal Benke. Is there another thing that affects the anterior stroma in particular? Why, yes, there is, Benito. There's gelatinous drop-like corneal dystrophy. And Right. Another name for that is primary familial amyloidosis. So... That name can remind you that this is an amyloid deposition in the anterior stroma. And that, that's reflected in the pathology where you have amyloid deposition that reportedly deposits due to disruption of the epithelial tight junctions, which is probably where the genetic abnormality is. Remember that amyloid can deposit in any condition that where you have chronic inflammation or chronic exposure or um, breakdown of the, the epithelium or the, the anterior, um, uh, anterior aspect of the cornea. This is just a congenital version of that where they just were born with this, this abnormality. So this one actually has a unique gene that we haven't talked about yet, and it's TACSTD2. Oh, STD, I said that. <laughs> you said STD on air. You're never going to become president. Which stands for tumor-associated calcium signal transducer 2. Well, so what does it look like? Yeah, this one has pretty colorful descriptions. There's three variations. One is a mulberry-shaped gelatinous mass. 
which are kind of smaller um, uh, lesions where there's still visual potential through it. And they look, apparently look like mulberries. I actually, before learning about this, did not know what a mulberry looked like. But now I do. There's also the band keratopathy type. So it'll look you know, very similar to band keratopathy and deposit in a similar pattern. And then finally, there's a very severe kumquat-like gelatinous drop-like corneal dystrophy where the front of the eye looks just like a kumquat. If you didn't know what a kumquat was, and again, I'll admit I didn't, it's an orange. It's like a tiny orange. Is that basically it? No. It's a tiny orange, right? No, it's like way more bitter. It's, it's like more... This, it's like the size of a date. Right, but it's like a tiny orange. It's a date-sized. But it's very bitter. Oh, okay. So it's like a bad orange. So it's the front of your eye will look like a bad orange. Basically. To be honest, I've never tasted it. I've just been told that. Stay posted for the uh, after credits to find out more about kumquats. So clinically, these patients will have the vision decrease depending on the degree or the type of gelatinous drop-like dystrophy that they have. They can have pain from erosions because remember, this is affecting anteriorly, so that will affect the adherence of that epithelium. Uh, it typically starts at a young age, and it frequently recurs if transplanted. So there's really not many management options that are super helpful. Apparently, contacts can be helpful. Luckily, it's a rare disease. Okay. So moving on to just the stromal dystrophies. There's macular. Let's start there. Macular. Is that, a, is that an acronym for something? Is that... Dr. Rudford, would you say that macular may be its own mnemonic? Maybe in your world. <laughs> <laughs> check, check it out. If you spell out macular, the M can stand for a mucopolysaccharide, which is what deposits in macular. The A stands for alcyon blue, which is the stain that you can use to find mucopolysaccharide. The C can stand for either CHST6, which is the gene. It's the only dystrophy that's caused by CHT6, um, or consumed for colloidal iron, which is another stain that is used for mucopolysaccharide. The L can stand for limbus to limbus, i.e. this is a disease, even though it's called macular, and that may make you think it's only going to affect the central cornea, it really can affect from one end of the limbus to the other end of the limbus, i.e. the whole cornea. And the A stands for autosomal recessive, because this is one of the few dystrophies that's autosomal recessive. Many of the others are autosomal dominant, as we'll cover in a bit. So I was really listing most of the features of macular corneal dystrophy. You'll see that it, it causes these, um, you know, whitish deposits in the deeper stroma. But it, and again, it can cover from limbus to limbus. What's another stromal corneal dystrophy, Amanda? Well, granular is actually kind of similar looking to macular, so why don't we go there next? This one, however, is a TGF-beta-1 corneal dystrophy. I think you're probably noticing a theme by now. So with granular corneal dystrophy, what you see is hyaline deposited in the stroma, and you use Masson trichrome stain to help visualize that hyaline. It can also have this crushed breadcrumb appearance. And there's space in between the lesions, which is different from macular, which we were talking about earlier, which is just one big sheet of badness. 
And then to kind of finish off the trio that, because these three are often talked about together, is lattice degeneration. The associated gene is also TGF-beta-1. And here the pathology is, and this is another amyloid deposition uh, dystrophy, though this is also pretty interior, though it doesn't manifest at all like gelatinous drop-like dystrophy. To remind you, amyloid can stain with conger red or crystal violet. Both uh, may show up on, on exams and both are important to know about. Just as a side note, there's a lattice corneal dystrophy type 2 out there, but that's no longer considered part of a cor- the corneal dystrophies because of systemic manifestations due to the systemic amyloidosis. So we won't go into it in detail here, but it may show up on past questions and such. So now that we've discussed those, we can start talking about avelino, which is also known as type 2 granular. It's essentially a combination of both lattice and granular corneal dystrophy. It has both hyaline deposits and amyloid deposits. Interestingly, uh, it's called avelino because it was first described in a group of families that were found to have this disorder in avelino, Italy. Okay, so... Now might be a good time to talk about Marilyn Monroe. Who's Marilyn Monroe? Wow, some like it hot? Come on, Ben. You need to stop studying and watch some more movies. Okay, thank God I have editorial power. It's actually one of the few comedies that won an Academy Award for Best Picture. What's this Marilyn Monroe business? Marilyn Monroe was one of the most beautiful, most talented... No, just kidding. I mean, she was she was pretty cool, but... Welcome to Monroe for years, <laughs> a Marilyn Monroe-focused podcast. So there's a very famous mnemonic for OCAP's review that has to do with macular lattice and granular corneal dystrophy, and it's about Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe always gets her men in L.A. County. First one is Marilyn, which stands for macular. Monroe for mucopolysaccharide. Always. I'll see in blue, which is what you use to stain to see the mucopolysaccharides. Gets is for granular. Her is for hyaline. Man is for trichrome, which is what you use to see the hyaline when you're staining it. And then LA County is lattice, amyloid, and Congo red. Or crystal violet, if that helps you remember. Okay, that's pretty good. So what's next? There's another one that affects the stroma called Schneider's corneal dystrophy. It's specifically due to a local lipid metabolism problem. So it's essentially where lipid deposits in the stroma and that lipid stains with oil red O or Sudan black. Those are the two that stain. So this usually appears very early in life. And what you may see on exam first is very dense arcus, but usually we see arcus in our you know, Medicare population. And this time, if you're seeing it in someone who's much younger and in both eyes, you should be thinking about Schneider's. Now, classically, it tends to affect the central cornea. And as a result, there's this classic presentation where patients will have poor vision in bright light conditions because the pupil will be constricted. So it's hard for them to see around the central corneal opacity. And that's in contrast to in dim light conditions when their pupil is more dilated, they'll be able to see around their central corneal um, opacity and see, honestly, uh, surprisingly well, given how significant their opacity can appear. How does that go with the arcus? Um, I think the arcus is peripheral enough that it doesn't, it's not like, doesn't get individualized. So does it not classically have arcus too? No, it does have arcus too. 
So it's Arcus plus Central. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. You know, to that point, someone with early Arcus should tip you off to look for something like Schneider's corneal dystrophy. But if someone has who's older has only unilateral Arcus, that actually can be an indication that the the on the unaffected side, either side without Arcus, they may have significant carotid disease because not enough blood flow is getting to the cornea on that side to deposit the normal uh, lipid that is seen in Arcus senilis. So a patient walks into your office and you see all these lipid depositions in their cornea. What you need to do is check for the lipid levels or get a lipid panel. Though controlling the lipids doesn't really affect the progression of the disease, it's important to monitor that and remember that you are a doctor first. Right. Interestingly, in patients with uh, Schneider's, you know, some they don't have to have lipid, you know, systemic lipid metabolism problems. But when they do have lipid metabolism problems, sometimes unaffected family members may also have markedly elevated lipids. So, you know, that suggests there is some kind of systemic association with it. But um, but this is still a local lipid metabolism problem to the cornea. One last note is that Schneider's used to be called Schneider's crystalline dystrophy. The reason for that is um, when the lipid deposits in the epithelium, it de- deposits as a crystal. So, you know, people thought of this as a crystalline disease. However, the epithelial deposits only happen 50% of the time. So that's why they generalize the name now to just Schneider's corneal dystrophy to make it more general, which indicates that it can affect epithelium and the stroma. Well, okay. There's only like a few more weird ones to go over, right? Yeah, thank goodness, because there are already too many. There's so many. So the next one is congenital stromal corneal dystrophy. This is an autosomal dominant disorder, and it's associated with the gene decorin. Decorin? Decorin. So as the name suggests, it's congenital, and it's a diffuse stromal dystrophy that presents with a thickened cornea with flake-like opacities. So even though it looks kind of bad and it starts from birth, it is actually not that bad of a prognosis because it is either non-progressive or slowly progressive. And one last thing is that it is extremely rare. There's only a few families that have been noted to have it, and um, it's only been reported a couple times in the literature. This will come up because it can be on the differential when looking at someone who you think has CHED, which we'll cover in next uh, week's episode. Okay. Way to throw out a cliffhanger. Oh, oh, you'll have to go tune in next time, dear listener. (laughs) But before we end it, let's talk about fleck dystrophy. What is fleck dystrophy? It's a dystrophy with flex. Um, there's, Ow, yeah, I, I know it has these discrete dandruff-like lesions. That's another word that's associated with it. Uh, it's usually not very symptomatic. It doesn't, you know, require any additional management in general. You know, so it doesn't really cause increased pain. It doesn't cause, you know, usually minimal to no vision changes. And you know, it's not very anterior stromal, which is why it doesn't typically cause abrasions or pain. So the next one is posterior amorphous corneal dystrophy, and it presents as a posterior sheet-like opacity. So the cornea is thin and flat, and the opacities that you see in this dystrophy actually indent Desimus membrane. And then finally, there's one that's you know can be seen as fairly similar called pre-Desimus corneal dystrophy. Here, the keratocytes that live in the corneal stroma are actually enlarged with a lipid-like material. There's some 
you know, studies that show that that lipid-like material is a lipofusion. So there's thought that it's degenerative matter, but, uh, you know, I don't think that really makes much of a difference clinically, but it will appear like focal fine gray opacities just anterior to decimase. And they'll, you know, usually have normal vision because they, they aren't very dense. So the difference between posterior amorphous cranial dystrophy and pre-decimase cranial dystrophy is posterior amorphous tends to look more like a sheet-like thing and pre-decimase cranial dystrophy tend to look more like fine focal gray opacities from those enlarged keratocytes. So Ben, any mnemonics to help us remember all the stuff? No, we're done. This, thank you for listening. No, I'm joking. There's a couple more mnemonics that um, you know I find helpful for me to remember some orders of things with respect to corneal dystrophies. One of them is to help you remember which dystrophies tend to recur if you attempt a transplant to fix them. So one of them is really likes to grow more. So that stands for really, which is respooklers, likes, which is lattice, grow, which is granular, and M, which is macular. So that's in decreasing order of how often they'll have a recurrence after a transplant. Another mnemonic is mini, large, grand. That just tells you at what age they tend to present. So mini is macular, so it tends to start early. Lattice will start early, like tends to be during childhood, sometimes before 20, and then granular for grand is um, tends to occur the latest in between these three. So to remind you, that's mini, large, grand, macular, lattice, granular. Okay, so one last mnemonic for you, and that is large genes. So these are the corneal dystrophies that are associated with TGF-beta-1. So TGF-beta-1 is located on chromosome 5, and there are five letters in the word large, which stands for lattice, avelinos, Reese-Buchler's, Granular, and sometimes EBMD. And that's all we have. Um, there's a few more dystrophies we'll talk about. Posterior dystrophies like Fuchs and PPMD. And we also want to talk about ectasias in association with these diseases. And you can check those out in next week's episode, which will be part two of the coronal dystrophies plus ectasias. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes for ears with the number four. You can also leave us any questions, comments, or corrections. We'd love to hear them. It also helps to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you for supporting us by listening. Bye! Bye! Welcome to the podcast Food for Ears, where we review different types of fruit. Today, we review kumquats. Wow, they say it's much sweeter than you think. Mm. Hmm, maybe we had really bad kumquats. One fun fact for about kumquats is apparently you eat the skin. Maybe that's why it's so bitter. Perhaps. What is a kumquat? Where's the part where it says what it tastes like? Another fun fact is that the bitterness of an orange actually comes from the peel. So when you the squeeze an orange, what? The skin is sweet for a kumquat. That's why you eat the skin. Is to help make the... So why eat the juice even? Oh. Okay. Eat the skin because it's sweet and that overpowers the sourness of the juice. There you go.
How, how I wonder the, if there's a satisfying kumquat cuts satis- Instagram. See, it's also, I don't like saying the word kumquat. Why like, not? I'm like kind of disappointed I'm saying it on air. Like, listen to yourself, kumquat. What I, if like, I am say I like kumquat, kumquat? See, yeah. Ooh, moist kumquat? Yeah, okay. So <laughs> clinically, these patients... Um, oh, we're still recording. We're still recording every second of this. 